0: Hello, and welcome to the World of Birds podcast. I am your host, Kayla Fisk. This is a podcast featuring the great diversity found throughout the bird world, including unique behaviors, adaptions, habitats, and everything in between to help educate others and inspire action to help protect and conserve these amazing species. This episode will be the first in a series for this podcast, where I'll feature a species and the steps taken to save it. These stories can help to shine on the efforts taken to help protect our world's fragile bird populations, and hopefully do more so that we don't lose any more species to extinction. Even those of us who live in the United States may not realize how close we were to losing our national symbol, the bald eagle, forever. To start this series off with the honor of it being May 28th, which is Whooping Crane Day, We will start with spotlighting this species and the process that it took to bring this species' population to where it is today. While you may be familiar with this bird's cousin, the Sandhill Crane, the Whooping Crane is not nearly as widespread. This beautiful, elegant crane is almost all white, with long black legs and a long gray bill with a peachy-colored base. Their primary feathers on their wingtips are black. From their bill, they have a black mask with a red crown. Their eyes are also gorgeous yellow. They are also one of North America's largest birds, standing at 5 feet tall with a wingspan of 7 to 8 feet. Originally, it is believed that the whooping crane population ranged from 15,000 to 20,000, but by the mid-1800s, there was only anywhere from 1,200 to 1,500 whooping cranes in all of North America and Canada. It has been seen in past records from the early American settlers that their range extended into six different provinces in Canada and in 35 different states in the U.S. By 1942, the population of this elegant bird was down to only 22 individuals. This tragically low number is mostly attributed to human activities such as overhunting and habitat loss from the development of marshlands, shorelines, and prairies. During this time, their prime habitats were being disturbed as the settlers were plowing the prairies, draining marshlands, in order for these areas to be used for farming. As the heartland of the United States was being settled, the whooping cranes and other birds lost these essential habitats, but the cranes took another hit, and this was the widespread hunting and collection of their eggs. These combined issues almost caused these birds to go extinct by the 1900s. Then, in 1918, the Migratory Bird Treaty Act was passed, which made it illegal to harm or kill most of the birds found throughout North America, including the whooping crane, Unfortunately, this didn't stop the decline of the population numbers. By the 1930s, there were only two small flocks remaining, one in Louisiana that was non-migratory and one that was migratory that wintered in Aransas National Park in Texas, but spent its summers in southern Canada. Unfortunately, in the 1940s, the small flock in Louisiana took another hit as a hurricane passed through the area and decimated their numbers which then went from 13 down to only 6 individuals by 1950 there was only one individual left of louisiana cranes this individual was named mac and with no other members of the species left in the area he was captured from there he was transported to the migratory flock in texas and introduced there unfortunately It didn't go to plan. Within six months, he was attacked and killed by a different whooping crane defending its territory. With this, all remaining whooping cranes resided solely in the migratory population that traveled between Texas and Canada. In 1946, Robert Porter Allen was sent by Audubon to study the cranes located in Texas to better understand their life history mainly to better understand their migration routes and to find nesting habitats. Luckily, in 1954, a nest was accidentally found in Wood Buffalo National Park that was located in Canada, thanks to helicopters being in the area due to a recent forest fire. Studies were then done to track nesting attempts, success, and colored bands were used to track sex ratios and at what age they were starting to breed. With that and radio transmitters being used, this allowed them to track the cranes throughout their migration, which was full of dangers and approximately 80% did not make it, mainly from collisions with power lines. Due to the fragile population of the whooping cranes, biologists started looking into captive breeding in order to try and safeguard the species. So in 1967, 12 eggs were collected and brought to Patuxent Wildlife Research Center in order to establish a captive population with the hope of releasing them in the future. This facility would be the birthplace of the captive whooping crane breeding project. But the first whooping crane in the Patuxent Center was actually an injured juvenile named Canus, which was received from a partnership between Canada and the U.S. and another imprinted female crane from the San Antonio Zoo, named Tex. This facility would raise and be the center of the captive breeding projects for these birds for 50 years until 2017, when their crane program ends and the remaining cranes are sent to other breeding facilities. Naturally, whooping cranes lay two eggs, but usually only one chick will survive. Because of this, both eggs and nest were deemed viable one would be taken in for captive rearing, without it affecting the wild populations of cranes. But if they encountered a nest where neither egg was viable, they would be able to replace one with a good egg from a different nest. This captive program saw its first milestone in 1975, when those first wild eggs that were collected then hatched, producing their first set of their very own eggs. Then, in 1989, Twenty-two captive cranes were transferred to the International Crane Foundation to keep two separate captive flocks to safeguard the populations from a natural disaster or disease outbreak. The process of starting a captive breeding program saw lots of challenges. To avoid the issue of cranes imprinting on the care staff, they wore specially designed outfits that were designed to resemble an adult whooping crane. They are basically a long jacket that also covered their faces. On one hand was a puppet that made to look like the face and beak of an adult whooping crane, and on the other hand was a black tip to resemble the black primaries of an adult. In a pocket of this costume, they also had an MP3 device so they can play contact calls to the young chicks. The next part of their plan would be to introduce them to the wild and create a new flock of cranes. So also in 1975, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the Canadian Wildlife Service began to experiment with the best way to go about this next step. The first experiment was to substitute the eggs from the captive whooping cranes into the nests of the wild sandhill cranes. The goal was that these sandhill cranes would hatch, raise, and then show these whooping cranes the migration route they needed to take. This option held much hope for the future of this project. While that part was successful, The eggs did properly hatch, and they were led to safe wintering grounds. The whooping cranes unfortunately imprinted on the Sandhill Crane foster parents, which caused them to have a bit of an identity crisis, and they didn't properly recognize other whooping cranes as potential mates. The population of whooping cranes in this experimental flock peaked at 33 individuals at the time frame of 1984 or 1985 with about 289 eggs have been introduced at this point. No more eggs were added after 1989. But by 1999, only four whooping cranes remained, and by 2001, only two were left in this flock. During this time, a recovery plan was started by crane biologists. Their goal was to increase the wild flock that was located in the Wood Buffalo National Park to 40 pairs and to create two more flocks with a minimum of 25 pairs each. So by 1993, 135 captive-raised cranes from the International Crane Foundation were released into Florida's Kissimmee Prairie. As of 1999, there were still 73 individuals in this new flock. And since this flock had no role models, they did not migrate, which also helped to avoid many dangers that they may have encountered on these long journeys. In 2002, a pair from this flock was successful in hatching and rearing a chick, making this the first wild whooping crane to hatch in the United States since 1939. In 2005, due to issues with high morbidity and poor reproductive success, it was decided that no more cranes would be released. By 2018, the flock numbers had dropped down to 14 cranes, and the remaining ones were planned on being transplanted to a Louisiana flock. A similar project was started in 2011 by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Louisiana. This population was also to be non-migratory. They would be the first whooping cranes in Louisiana since the 1950s. Ten juvenile cranes were released. It is hoped that this population would eventually be self-sustaining and to achieve this, the flock would have to grow to 120 individuals and approximately 30 productive pairs. It was also decided that there needed to be another migratory flock and they had to find a way to teach these captive cranes the path to and from their wintering and summer grounds. An experiment was first conducted by an Idaho rancher named Kent Clegg where he trained and reared sandhill and whooping cranes to fly behind his ultralight aircraft. So in October of 1997, Clegg led eight sandhills and four whooping cranes on an 800-mile journey to a national park in New Mexico. These birds were successfully joined with six cranes from previous ultralight flights, except for two whooping and two sandhills that were killed during the journey from hunting and predators. An experiment was also done in 1997 in Ontario, Canada by Bill Lishman and his team to use an ultralight to show a small flock of seven sandhill cranes a migration route down to Virginia. This was done to see if these captive-reared birds would be able to migrate back on their own. Then, the next spring, six of these cranes were successful and migrated back on their own to Ontario. Two more successful flights were done in 1998 and, And in 2000. This paved the way for an attempt of a flight with the endangered whooping cranes. After the Florida program, a migratory population project was started in 2001. This project was developed by the Whooping Crane Eastern Partnership, and they planned and began to create an eastern migratory flock that would travel between Wisconsin and southern Florida. They used a combination of the costume rearing for the chicks for release and the ultralight flights managed by Operation Migration to guide the birds to their wintering grounds. Just like earlier tests with the Sandhill Cranes, these Whooping Cranes successfully migrated back to their nesting grounds in Wisconsin. With the completion of their own migration, juvenile cranes were added to be directly released into the established flock, and they would then learn the route from the first introduced individuals. Then, in 2006, the first eggs from this group hatched, and the one chick that survived did make a successful migration down with her parents to Florida. Even though the whooping crane has been federally protected since 1918, they still face the threat of illegal hunting. It is estimated that 20% of the eastern migratory flock has been lost to shooting. Even with these threats, their numbers have been steadily growing and flocks expanding. It is estimated that there are now approximately 800 individuals, with about 140 of those in captivity. About 500 of those are in the Aransas wood buffalo migratory flock, 80 in the eastern migratory flock, 75 in Louisiana, and 9 in Florida. All of this is thanks to the protection of the Whooping Crane's habitat and wetlands and the hard work of many organizations. Such as Whooping Crane Eastern Partnership, International Crane Foundation, International Whooping Crane Recovery Team, Operation Migration, National Fish and Wildlife Foundation, the National Resource Foundation of Wisconsin, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Patuxent Wildlife Research Center, National Wildlife Health Center, and the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources. These organizations are the key to the Whipping Crane's success in the increase of their numbers from only 20 individuals back in the 1940s to having over 800 individuals like they do now. It is with hope that this continued support and conservation of their habitats that these great birds can continue to expand their population and become more stable so that they can be around for a long time and not come this close to facing extinction ever again. And with that, I wrap up this episode about whooping cranes and their conservation story. I hope you enjoyed it and learned a few things. If you did enjoy this episode, please feel free to share it, leave a review, or follow this podcast on your favorite listening platform. And as always, you can follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Kayla Fisk Birds. Thanks for listening, all you lovely bird nerds, and have a great day.